welcome to the DGB podcast for May 2021, volume 59, number five. My name is David Fasakli. I'm DGB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we're going to discuss some of the content of May's issue of DTB. We're currently recording on the 13th of April uh, and I'm pleased to report that in the UK some lockdown restrictions are being eased. So in some parts of the country you can get a haircut, sit outside a pub with a drink, uh, go to a library or even go to a gym. James, have you made any use of any of these yet? <laughs> and not one yet, unfortunately. I now wear hairbands when I'm working at the desk, so I really need to get a haircut, but now I'm afraid I've never had a gym membership that I've ever used. But possibly a pub membership. But um, that's certainly on the cards. Okay, the only other change, or the other major change since our last podcast, is the update from MHRA and EMA on the... AstraZeneca vaccine and their conclusion that the extremely rare adverse effect of blood clots with lowered platelets might be associated with the vaccine. But as they stressed, the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh the risks. In the UK, policy has changed slightly and that people under the age of 30 will not be offered the AstraZeneca vaccine as a routine. Other countries have made different decisions. I gather some are offering it to nobody. Some are using it in much older populations and, and some are still happy to use it in, in anyone over the age of 18. And, we're, and also we've had some advice issued about symptoms, including headache, bruising or shortness of breath after vaccination. Uh, James, again, have you had people asking you, has it caused a problem with people asking about headaches post-vaccination? Um, a little. I have to say, I think the MHRA and powers that be handle this exceptionally well. I really do. I think they, the, the, the conference, the, the news conference, when they detailed the evidence, I thought was really well handled. And I think they pointed out that it's not so much that people under 30 are necessarily more at risk. It's more that the benefit of the vaccine for that group of patients is not as great. And therefore, the sort of benefit cost analysis, if you like, doesn't swing in their favour. So I thought I thought it was very well handled. And I think as a consequence, the response from the general public has been actually remarkably muted about this. Um, we've still got a 98% take up of vaccine in my part of West Berkshire. We, we cover sort of about 110,000 patients in this patch, and we've still got a 98% take up. So I think there's still confidence in the vaccination system. And I think there's going to be issues arise. There's no guarantee that the Moderna vaccine isn't going to have something up its sleeve when it when it's used. So I think we just have to be aware that vaccines, like any other drug, you know, there is no such thing as a safe drug. Everything has a little uh, issue. And we just have to make sure that we keep vigilant and report all serious instances so that we can keep a close eye on all this and what's what's interesting is that we've we've got so far down this route before encountering yes it's a, it's a problem but it's a rare problem um and i think most of us might have expected something to have cropped up earlier than, than this so it is you know it, it is well it's good to know that a the system works and picks up the problems but b that this actually is a very rare issue uh, and what's it very interesting, even today, I just noticed on the American FDA website, um, so the US FDA and the CDC, and 
that's more acronyms than you get in a typical episode of Line of Duty. They're, they're investigating the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because they've now had six, six cases of CVST, uh, another, uh, another Line of Duty acronym, central venous thrombosis with low platelets, reported for, I say, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So uh, the system is working, it's picking up problems, but also it seems to be dealing with them very quickly. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think, of course, it's such a difficult issue when you are immunizing such a huge section of the population, the, the things are going to happen. And it's about really making sure that we, we record things in general. This is all about making sure that we're actually every day of our lives as clinicians, we are recording adverse events and coding problems on our systems so that we can have a close idea of what's going on and, and what changes when we start immunizing people or start to use medication of any sort. That brings us nicely on onto your editorial, I think, David. Time for transparency. Do you want to just give us a brief overview of, of what you are asking for to be transparent? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, this came out of a report published uh, last year that it, that it had investigated the um, harms that patients had suffered, and they looked at three products, hormone and pregnancy tests, sodium valparate, and mesh implants, and long history of, of patients being harmed by the, these products. And the, the report was very damning um, of the systems and processes that both the NHS use and also, also beyond the, the NHS. But one of the concerns they picked up, and, and the reason that prompted this editorial was was the issue of financial links and relationships between companies that make drugs and devices and clinicians hospitals and other organizations uh, and and the report's authors were particularly concerned about a lack of transparency of these relationships and one of their key recommendations was that all doctors should report all financial relationships as part of their their annual registration process. Yes, I mean she didn't didn't hold back, did she? Um, but I mean, is there any other? I I thought there were currently some. I thought the ABPI had a database of payments and benefits. I think you mentioned that in your editorial. They do. They 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 have a, a register. Uh, it's not comprehensive and it's not compulsory. Uh, and various people have looked at the information it holds and have criticized it for for those very reasons that that it, that it isn't comprehensive it's not clear whether you'll find a record on every clinician's activity there is a separate uh, voluntary again another voluntary website set up by doctors for doctors uh, called who pays this doctor which is laudable approach um, and doctors can record any outside interests financial or otherwise but again it's it's not mandatory therefore it's not comprehensive so there is there is a lack and yet other countries seem to be able to do it uh, and in the editorial we'll talk about um, a few countries who do have mandatory systems uh, and, and i guess the best one to date is is america the u.s reporting system which is a very easy to use database and you can look up organizations clinicians and find out exactly what what they've been paid and what they've received and i mean has there been any response from the department of health or parliament about this because her, her report came out was it last year i think wasn't it yes it was, it was last year and yes there has in january the department of health and social care issued it, its response to her 
or to the report's findings and its its recommendations and went went through each one and, and we acknowledge this in the editorials you know, there is progress on on some of the nine recommendations on this particular one and let's be clear that the what the report was asking for was for doctors to submit annually a deck all their declarations of interest at the time that they re re-register the, the department of health has not they've acknowledged that this is a recommendation but they haven't actually put forward any proposals plans or recommendations for whether this will be taken forward and i think one of the criticisms i would make of the report is that it, it, it stops at, at doctors reporting it doesn't look at all healthcare professionals now clearly doctors a vast majority of people who are making clinical recommendations and treating people but there are also pharmacists and nurses and physios and others and shouldn't actually we have a system that captures everybody and not not just the doctors i agree i think as you say um you feel that there should be a legal requirement that companies should report all payments made to all health professionals as you say and health organizations and patient support organizations you know i know for one that there are plenty of organizations that do use drugs on the basis of contracts that they've made with pharmaceutical companies so it's a field that is i think as yet really unknown and unseen by by many patients i think they'd be surprised by how much of this goes on I mean, what was interesting this week, it was that in the British Medical Journal, there was a, a rep, I think somebody had done a quick survey of, of what organisations that represent um, clinicians felt about this. And overwhelmingly, they were in favour of having some sort of system of, of recording conflicts of, of interest. I think my one other concern is that if you leave it to clinicians to report, you've got to be convinced that they've got they'll remember, A, they'll remember everything that, that they've, they've done. Um, maybe the onus is actually to put it on the funder um, and to make it the fund, anyone who's made the payment or has, has set up that relationship, it's the onus should be on them to port rather than rely on, on every single doctor remembering every single contact they've had. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, also in this, in this issue, we've got a um, forum article. Joe Congleton, our editorial board member, talks about BTS guidance on the long-term use of macrolides in respiratory disease. Uh, any main issues for you? Yes, I thought this was a really useful article because the use of long-term antimicrobials, particularly the macrolides in patients with lung disease, in particular, I think most of us are aware of bronchiectasis and perhaps COPD, is something that's sort of been bubbling away. And I know that there are some uh, specialists and GPs who use this quite a bit. And this is a very useful BTS guidance published uh, last year, which Joe has used as the background for her paper, which just really just goes through the evidence and explains really the benefits or not of using particularly azithromycin, but also other of the macrolides in all lung diseases. And the particular emphasis on on not their anti-infective uh, properties, but but some immunomodulatory action that they might they might exert. Um, but clearly, I'm not aware that any are actually licensed for this indication. Is that is that the case? No, that's right. So the, so none of these drugs are licensed for long-term use. And as you say, it's it's felt that this is not an antimicrobial action that these drugs are having. It's something more than that. 
and uh, the benefits can be can be good in those patients that most require it and one of the issues really is that we're only dealing here i suppose about reducing symptoms or reducing exacerbations these are not drugs that reduce the outcome of the disease in any way and to be a benefit you're already talking about patients who are having high exacerbation rates talking about if someone had for example copd we're requiring about them having at least three exacerbations each year and at least one of those requiring a hospital admission so this is not just for your everyday copd patients this is for patients who are very often uh, clinically symptomatic or ill with their condition so we, we should not be reaching for our prescription pads to be prescribing macrolides in our patients but it may be that we should be aware that this is an option in those having high levels of exacerbations and just take some specialist advice about whether this might be an option and there seem to be lots that you should be doing even before you consider this making sure that all other treatments have been optimized that can that adherence is good yeah i think she covers this really well actually so you know point to consider before treatment and then points to consider during treatment so these drugs need monitoring things like liver function tests obviously beware drug interactions you know i always think the uh, macrolides are one of those drugs that when you see it on a patient's prescription you have to think very carefully about what you're prescribing because you know there is often an interaction and then also the business about reviewing so these patients should be reviewed every six to twelve months to, to decide whether it's still worthwhile than being on it okay thank you very much and then our main article this month looks at uh, well let's call it car t-cell therapy and, and what does car stand for yes yeah, so this is a new um therapy car car stands for chimeric antigen receptor t-cell therapy it's a new gene therapy so this is not a drug as such these are techniques used to treat particular cancers and there are two therapies that have been licensed i'm not going to try and pronounce the generics the brand names is camria and yes carter but these are techniques where you take t-cells from a patient um, who has a cancer and you manipulate them in a way that they then actually when they're reintroduced to the person they actually fight the cancer so, so the, a very clever drug. So at the, mo the moment, the only the, the, the process of, of developing these two products is, is long-winded in the sense that you've got to extract T-cells and then do something with them before putting them back. So there's a whole s series of uh, processes that have to go on before you can treat the patient. Exactly right. And it takes some time and there's a great deal of issues around also um, making sure the patient's prepared for this in the sense that you need to have avoided certain treatments as well before you can even decide whether they are patients that might be right for this. And we're talking about exceptionally expensive treatments here. So in the hundreds of thousands of pounds, I think it was 250 and 280,000 pounds per treatment for for these therapies. So this is a very new, very specialized, exceptionally clever treatment. And I think this is, you know, one of the first clear um, examples of gene therapy being targeted to individual patients for treatment of their disease. But despite the, the clear cost, NICE have approved them? Yes, I mean, because there have been some remarkable outcomes. So we're talking about there's there's very few trials and they're, and they're often only of 100 or perhaps a little bit more 
enrolled patients, but we're talking about 60% complete remission rates at three months. Um, often these are quite short term, but we're talking about high levels of complete remission, often in patients who are very sick. But at this stage of, of the sort of drug life cycle, these are relatively new. So as you say, the, the, the trials are relatively short-term endpoints, aren't they? And at the moment, we haven't got longer-term data. No, we're talking about very short follow-up, perhaps 12 months maximum. And there are some serious concerns about adverse events. You get this cytokine release syndrome, which is can be life-threatening, and it creates, you know, basically when the reprogrammed T cells start to attack the cancer, you can get this sort of cytokine rush, which releases sort of severe symptoms, and I say can even in, cause neurological symptoms and death. So uh, these are powerful new techniques, and the long-term effects are unknown. But but certainly worth knowing, uh, partly because they, they are increasingly being considered for other other areas of treatment, but it may well be that this is the first in a, in a whole new range of, of gene therapies. I agree. It, it's, I think, two elements for us mere mortals standing on the sidelines. One, that just to be aware of the fact that this is a therapy that's available. But also, you know, I suspect we will start to see these patients coming back to us. And even after they've had the gene therapy, there's a great deal of monitoring that needs to be done. They're, you know, they're not allowed to drive initially because of concerns about uh, aspects. So this is something which we need to be aware of as clinicians so that if patients come to us who've had this therapy, we understand some of the possible complications and issues that might arise. Okay, th thanks for that. Um, and then finally, this month there's a case report of quinidine hypersensitivity. Um, what happened? Yes, this, uh, this is a case that was always going to happen. I'm, I'm gonna start, this is a 69 year old woman who was taking a significant number of drugs, quinidine, amiodarone, rivaroxaban, spironolactone, pregabalin, buspirone, duloxetine. I mean, anyone listening will be thinking now, which one of those is the guilty party in this? And uh, it turns out this is a 69-year-old with severe problems with recurrent resistant ventricular tachycardias who had been put on quinidine to try and control these and was admitted to hospital with an episode of quinidine hypersensitivity. And did it take them long to work out which was the causative agent? No, I mean, they, 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 they tried to make the story difficult, but in the, in, in the write-up, if you like, but actually it was pretty barn door in the sense that this had been started a month before. She had very typical signs of a drug-induced liver injury and uh, they pointed their finger very quickly at the quinidine and on stopping it she very quickly got better within a week her liver function tests were pretty much back to normal and it's probably worth us pointing out before we get inundated with hundreds of letters from our friends in the uk that quinidine isn't actually marketed in the uk any longer but it is still used. I mean, if you if you look, there are still patients who are who are receiving it. So yes, we know it's not we know it's not actively promoted or or, or used. But there is still enough of it about to, to make this an interesting an interesting case. Yeah, and I and I I suspect any pharmacists listening, you know, the, the number of times people click on quinidine by mistake, perhaps rather than quinine, it's always been an issue. Um, this is not quinine we're talking about; it's quinidine, which is a very different drug altogether. 
Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. If you enjoy these podcasts, please leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. You can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for June's podcast. Bye.